Good morning. I'm Jonathan Davidar. Our reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 1. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. Dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that the gospel message I preach is not based on mere human reasoning. I received my message from no human source, and no one taught me. Instead, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. You know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. But even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. When this happened, I did not rush out to consult with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away into Arabia, and later I returned to the city of Damascus. Then, three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days. The only other apostle I met at that time was James, the Lord's brother. I declare before God that what I am writing to you is not a lie. After that visit, I went north into the provinces of Syria and Cilicia, and still the churches in Christ that are in Judea didn't know me personally. All they knew was that people were saying, the one who used to persecute us is now preaching the very faith he tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. The word of the Lord. Hey, I'm glad that you guys are here this morning. If you have not been with us the past couple of weeks, we've been in the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians, where he makes a very logical argument about the nature of the gospel and in contradiction to false teachers who were coming in preaching a not-by-grace-alone gospel. But in the section that we're in this morning and next week as well, we get to what's called the biographical or autobiographical section of the book of Galatians. When Paul steps in and says, let me tell you about myself. And so what he does is he retells about his life before knowing Christ and then his conversion and calling and then his advancement in proclaiming the gospel and having it affirmed by the church in Jerusalem and others. And one of the main reasons he's doing this, your kind of commentators will tell you, is because he's trying to prove his authority. They were saying, Paul, you shouldn't listen to Paul. And Paul's saying, here's why I have authority and you can trust my gospel. But this morning, I want to focus on another aspect of Paul's personal story, his autobiography, and why it's important to us. It's because I believe that Paul also gives his story in order to reveal the gospel itself. It is a testimony of what God does in saving somebody. And then he calls us into the same gospel-changed life. So the wording that Paul uses, and I'm going to build off of this as we break this apart a little bit, is he uses formerly but now. And if you read through the verses that we just had, and that was my mistake on giving you guys the New Living Translation while I'm reading the English Standard Version and other things up there, but the, we'll have it together at some point here eventually. But Paul starts talking about his biography, his story, his autobiography, and he uses formerly. And in verse 13, we read this, that formerly, he, he writes this in verse 13 of chapter 1, Formerly, or for you have heard of my former life in Judaism. 
how I persecuted the church of God, violently trying to destroy it. So Paul, looking back on his life, starts off with, hey, you know why you can trust me? Because I used to persecute the church. And here's what he's getting at. Paul's former life involved being the sort of person that was horrific to Christians. He, under the authority of the the Jerusalem leadership, in the early days of the church, stood by as Stephen, the first martyr, was executed. In fact, by the description that's given in Acts chapter 7, 8, and 9, in the description that's there, Paul actually was the judge. Everyone laid their cloaks down at his feet so that they could stone uh, Stephen. So he was the judge executing judgment. And then in the chapter that follows, Peter, I mean, uh, Paul is going around arresting Christians. And to be arrested, he would go in, break into their houses and drag them out and put them in chains, which for many of them would involve execution. And the question is, why did he do it? Why was Paul going around going after this early church movement, these Christians, arresting them, executing them? And we think in something like that, I would, I would never be that sort of person. I wouldn't go around chasing and murdering. But I think we have to remember, we all have inside of us a natural natural leaning towards persecuting other people. This is where I see it coming out. So over the past five, six years, if you've lived in the D.C. area, there have occasionally been marches and protests in D.C. If you go back over the past five or six years, there are marches and protests about things that you disagree with. My question is this. Are you the sort of person who says, I think they're wrong, or do you despise, disdain them? Do you look down on them? Does their wrongness make them less in your mind? Should they be shut down? This is especially true with the current climate regarding vaccines and masks. And regardless of where you stand on that, unless you're absolutely neutral, all three of you, then you have opinions about people who disagree with you with regards to vaccines and masks. And most likely, your opinions of them move to the strong level of a version of disdain that in another context could very easily do what Paul did. In a recent article in The Atlantic, Anne Applebaum writes about the new Puritanism. Basically, that because of our social media world and our mob mentality, there is a new Puritanism to purify whatever we believe in from everybody who's wrong and eliminate, whether it's with a scarlet letter or an execution, everybody that we think is off and wrong. And all the while think that what you're doing is right and good based on the truth, which is exactly what Paul was doing. He believed that what he was doing was right, purifying the faith, getting rid of people blaspheming God. Everything about what he was doing was being applauded by the leadership and people around him. But Paul wasn't just a murderer. He was also a really good person, and we have to remember this. We see this in verse 14 when he describes himself in his former life. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Multiple times, Paul talks about his past in this very positive way, advancing in Judaism beyond many of my 
uh, people in my own age. He studied under Gamaliel, who was the chief rabbi in Jerusalem. It was like clerking for the Supreme Court chief, knowing that you were one day going to be Supreme Court chief. You were just the smartest, brightest guy. He, he, you know, top of his class, and then to law school, top of his class, and then studied under the best connected person he possibly could with the most influence and was given basically total autonomy to do what he wanted. He was an amazing young man. He uses the term Pharisee, and we think about it negatively, but in that culture, it was a high honor to be a Pharisee. It meant that you were incredibly educated, you were well-connected, you were brilliant, and you took the faith seriously. You observed the law of God fastidiously, and you could teach anyone about it, which was the highest goal of any young man in, in that culture. They valued it above everything else. He was a chief rabbi and a brilliant young one at that, advancing beyond people of his age. He explains it more clearly, the, the description of his former greatness, if you would, in Philippians chapter 3. When he writes, I was circumcised on the eighth day, the exact way it was supposed to be, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the more reputed and recognized tribes of um, Israel culture, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, I was a Pharisee, and that was used in the good way, right? As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, anybody who was outside of the faith, I would get rid of them. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So can you say that about yourself? As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Ten commandments, done, done, and done. All 623 other rules, got them taken care of. How about you? He did everything he was supposed to. He was the best of the best. When I was in middle school, um, that you know, kind of big movie came out, uh, Top Gun, fighter pilots um, in the Navy, Tom Cruise, et cetera, et cetera. There was some remake that's maybe coming out eventually. But at that age of like seventh, eighth grade, sixth, seventh, eighth grade for me, I already wanted to go into the military. I thought about kind of Army, Navy, that sort of thing. And I actually wanted to fly. And so by ninth grade, I was gunning, if you would, for the Naval Academy. And I was shooting for that because I wanted to be a pilot. And I wanted to do that. Um, now, let it be known, I did not get into the Naval Academy. In fact, I never applied. So they have three requirements to be in the Naval Academy. It is academics, it is leadership, and it is athletics. All three have to be there in strong ways. I definitely was semi-strong in two of those three ways. And so I never applied. I never even got a senatorial letter. I never went beyond that. But God called me somewhere else, right? But what I do know is that when I was reading about this, you got to see how 16,000 people would apply to the academy, 1,200 would get in. Of the 1,200, the top would choose to be pilots, and of the top pilots, the top top would be fighter pilots. And of the top fighter pilots, only the top of the top got to go to the Top Gun school. They were the best of the best. Brilliant, accomplished, amazing. That was Paul. In any way you can describe it, in any category, we all have a version of that. He was the best of the best. Every culture and every subculture that you might be in has its chief rabbi role. But that's what Paul was. And yet, he looks at it now as his former way of life. And in verse 8 of chapter 3, 
He talks about all his former accomplishments, his status, his education, his religious fastidiousness, his, you know, clerking for the Supreme Court justice. He says, indeed, I count everything in my past as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish is a Britishism that we like. We think it's cute. When, um, when we came back from England, my boys had thick English accents, but they were not the good English accents. It was West Country Bristolian, um, and my son, John, got into an argument with his friend Patrick about what the best football team was. And uh, my son, John, liked the Steelers, his friend Patrick liked the Giants, and John declared to him in his Bristolian English, the joyants are the rubbishest. And Patrick, they, they, everyone started laughing, and I was, you know, he meant it as a very strong cutdown. You do not want to be the rubbishest. It's the worst of the worst. And Paul is saying all of his former accomplishments, right? Harvard undergrad, Yale law school, clerking for the Supreme Court justice, or his version of it, as well as living a morally good life, doing all the right things. It's now the worst of the worst in his own opinion, looking back on it. It does nothing. It should be flushed down the toilet. Think about that with whatever in your life you look back on and you say, this is what makes me important. This is where I get my status, my sense of identity or worth. Formerly, but, the but comes in here. Formerly, but, in verse, the next couple of verses, verse 15 and 16, he gets to the but. Paul writes, but when he, when God, who set me apart from before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him to the Gentiles. I'm going to just stop there. But when he who had set me apart, all of this was a part of my past formerly, but when he, but God. That's, of course, Paul's Damascus Road experience. If you've read it or if you haven't, go back and read Acts 9. Paul is on his way to Damascus, a city a good distance from Jerusalem. He's going with an entourage in order to go and arrest and bring back Christians in Damascus. And on his way, he's confronted, his whole party is confronted by a bright light and a voice, but he can see what's inside of that bright light. He sees the risen Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus says to him, and Paul, hearing him and seeing him very clearly, says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. I am the Savior, the Christ, the risen Lord. You better stop. Paul's life was never the same. You can read more about his conversion and how God arrested him who was going to arrest others. He had a but God experience on the road to Damascus. And in that sense, Paul's testimony is an illustration of the gospel itself. Formerly, this is who I was. I was both bad, worse than you, and great, better than you, but God. But God came in and intervened. 
You know, in our confession of faith, our creed, which is we often do from like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, but we also use other scriptural passages. Our passage this morning was from Ephesians chapter 2. And we start off with this phrase, we believe that God who is rich in mercy, but actually in the text it says, but God. But I felt like it doesn't feel normal if we stand up, let's confess our faith, but God. And so we start with we believe. But what goes before that is Paul saying in the early part of Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were under the power of Satan even though you didn't know it. You were destined for hell, but God. The but God is the great news of the gospel. No matter how bad you were or are or how good you are, you need that but God moment. You need God to enter in and say, but I have done something that you really need. And in this sense, the gospel that Paul experienced and that he was proclaiming was unthinkable. You know, Paul did not think his way into Christianity. Think about that. He didn't just think, okay, I know the, I know the scriptures. I've studied the Old Testament or the, the Hebrew Bible. I, I know all of this, and if I study it hard enough, then I'll figure it out, and then I'll come to faith in Jesus. You can't think your way into Christianity, even though thinking is a part of it. He was highly educated. He was a brilliant, logical thinker and philosopher. But reading more, studying more, was not going to get him to life-changing faith in Christ. Beth Moore sums it up this way in her study. Without the Holy Spirit transforming Paul's heart and opening his mind, the mere suggestion that salvation would come by faith in Jesus alone and not by works of the law would have seemed unthinkable. Our confidence in Paul's gospel is boosted by the fact that if he were going to make something up, this would not be it. And then Paul went on to be one of the most influential humans in the history of humanity. A person who was responsible for the missionary spread of the gospel to the Gentile world who proclaimed that same gospel that would have been unthinkable before his Damascus Road experience. And so now, Paul goes on to tell the Galatians, he is a different person. Now, this is what people are saying. They only, this is verse 23 of Galatians 1, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. The one who used to persecute us is now a preacher of the same faith he once tried to destroy. He moves from persecutor to preacher. God redeems Paul's past. God uses his past as well. His Roman citizenship, his exposure to Greco-Roman rhetorical and philosophical circles, his Jewish pedigree, his rabbinic Old Testament and legal study. He used all of that brilliance, all of his dual citizenship, his entrance into Judaism, his ability to speak in Greek and Roman worlds to make him one of the most influential thinkers, writers, and preachers the world has ever known. The gospel 
enables us to take a different look at our past, both our brokenness and our strengths, and see how God is in the business of redeeming and using everything for his glorious purposes. Tim Keller writes about it this way, the gospel gives us a pair of spectacles through which we can review our lives and see God preparing us and shaping us, even through our own failures and sins, to become vessels of his grace in the world. Paul's story, his life story, his testimony, communicates the gospel. It is a formerly but now gospel. A formerly but now gospel. It is a gospel only by grace salvation. And it is a by grace gospel that seeks to transform and continue transforming us. That's what Paul's story tells us. The gospel wants to arrest us and redeem us and change us. But as Paul's story also tells us, our problem, especially around here, is we have a problem with winning. And what do I mean by that? I think if I was thinking about Paul's story, this is what I would ask. Can you live your whole life working really hard, being successful and accomplished, recognized by those you admire, doing better than your peers, and then realize it was all in vain, that you were all wrong, that the entire direction of your life that you believed was right, and all your achievements in life that have been constantly rewarded from your parents to your peers to your superiors. That all of that stuff was not actually good or right or built on any real truth. I think Paul's story is a warning to the spiritual danger of success and even a life of moral goodness. I think Paul's story tells us this. If you are the chief rabbi, it seems that you may be in more danger spiritually than if you're the thief or the prostitute or the drug dealer. The addict in NA admits his need. The head of the PTA or the senior vice president doesn't. Our problem with winning is that we like to win. And many of us in a place like this are very successful. And that's why what we really need is a but. We need a but. We need the but of God. That doesn't sound right. We're going to stick with it. You do not choose the gospel. It chooses you. You know, if you've had conversations with people that are skeptical or maybe outside of Christianity, you're trying to kind of navigate that whole thing, or maybe that's where you are, this is a conversation that I've had. Is like, okay, I like this, this, and this, but why do you have to believe that? And there's some issue, some topic, something. Why do you have to believe that? As if Christianity is a set of ideas you choose, or you pick and choose. These are the things I like, these are the things I don't. Now, yes, there are beliefs you work through as a Christian, 
There are things you intellectually assent to and decide on and need to dig deeper into so you fully understand it and grasp it. There is doctrine. There are creeds. There are things we believe and stand on. But Christianity is not something you choose so much as something, it's something that happens to you when God butts in. I think when someone says, okay, I like this, this, and this, but why do you believe that? It shows that they've had no experience with the gospel, no experiential experience with the gospel, no Damascus Road experience. Or they're comfortable just seeing Jesus as a religious figure to learn from, but not as Lord, and therefore not as actual Savior in Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Welsh preacher of the last century, critiqued Victorian Christians who came before him in England. And he said, um, they were all, all the Victorian Christians were active churchgoers. They were incredibly moral. They were generous in charities, all good things, but few of them actually knew God. His quote is this, religion overshadowed them, but it did not penetrate them. In other words, they were around religion, and they looked religious, and religious activity was all everywhere. But the gospel never penetrated their heart. And you can see this. I've seen this. You could be very faithful in certain places, and then you leave that place, and you can no longer seem to understand why you believed in Christianity in the first place. I see kids, I saw it, I see it today, I saw it when I was a kid, going through high school, involved in Young Life, involved in Beyond, involved in a small group, and they get off to college and it's like they never believed in any of it at all. Or they go to college and they get really involved in InterVarsity or Crew or RUF or Chi Alpha, whatever the, the organization is, and their faith becomes really important to them and they get really excited about it. And Friday nights when they have that worship gathering or Tuesday nights, it's super exciting and it's fun and it's, it's really important to them. And then they leave college and they don't seem to be able to ever find a church. Or it's older in life when they find a church, it's the right church, and, and God speaks to them in that church, and they, they're involved in a small group, and they're around the sort of people they like to be around, and things are really important to them now. They want to even read the Bible or go to a small group, and then they move, and they can't seem to find a church. See, it's possible if that's your case, religion has overshadowed you, but not penetrated your heart. Here's a question. Can you be alone with God? The sign of Christianity that has been overshadowed and not penetrated is you can't be alone with God. You know, a sign of good friendship, really good friendship, whether that's in a marriage or best friends in high school or later on in life, or you and your sister are really good friends, the sign of a good friendship is that you, there's always more to talk about. There's always more to connect on. Always more of life to enjoy with this other person. That's a good relationship, a good friendship. Do you get alone with God? And five minutes in, you have nothing to say. You're like, now what? Or does God get more real to you when you're alone with him, not less? How do you know well, that's really the key there, is knowing. 
but I'm going to use no in that Hebrew way of no and no, and we've talked about this before. Hebrew has two words for no, and there's sort of some nuance on them, but really there's two ways of understanding no in Hebrew. One is intellectual, one is emotional. One is objective truth and academic and study and things you can know about. Other is relational and personal. It's emotional. Both need to be true about your understanding of the God of the Bible, about the one who died and rose, about the gospel. Yes, we need to know objective truth of the gospel. No, you cannot read your way into faith in Christ. But yes, you do need to read your way deeper in or ask questions to push you deeper in. You do need to be with God, study, understand, grasp. There is a part of it that has objective truth. There is mental assent, and there are truths within Christianity that are vital and integral to the Christian gospel. But it's not just head knowledge. It's also knowing subjectively. It's not just knowing the truth. It's experiencing the one who is the truth. It's a heart connection an actual relationship with Christ. And I think one of the questions that's implied in Paul's story is, do you know him? Do you know and know him? Because he knows you. And as Paul's story tells us, he's known you since before you were born. Let's pray. Oh God, the light of minds that know you, the life of souls that love you, the strength of wills that serve you, help us to know you and to truly love you and in loving you, faithfully serve you whom to serve is perfect freedom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.